The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Well, to subscribe to Chen's letter or to my letter, go to miningstocks.com. Or uh, call our office in New York during the regular hours uh, at 718-457-1426. You uh, just remind you that Chen has had a remarkable uh, track record, uh, taking uh, $4,500 up to $2.5 million, did that in a matter of uh, 10 years. Uh, Chen uh, has some really exciting things to talk about, uh, some exciting uh, things that he tells you about once in a while on this show. We want to get him on this show more often in the future. But in any event, uh, to subscribe to either Chen's letter or mine, go to miningstocks.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I would like to invite you to keep your questions and comments coming to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. <coughs> Excuse me. It's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. And I'd also like to invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle there is jtaylormedia. J-A-Y Taylor Media and the best website to go to to follow me and all that I do is jtaylormedia.com I also want to thank uh, Dynasert uh, Inc. for sponsoring today's show and in just a couple of minutes from now Jim Payne, the president uh, of Dynasert will join me to talk about his company's proven hydrogen technology that significantly reduces fuel consumption for the trucking industry and vastly reduces the carbon emissions but actually, uh, the trucking industry looks like it will be just the start for Dynasert's technology because it offers huge fuel savings that can be, uh, can be had for ocean liners, large ocean liners. And indeed, the auto industry may be interested in, uh, uh, in using this technology at all. There's some investigations, especially uh, since some of the, uh, the problems that the industry has been facing recently. Uh, and in countries that rely on generators for power generation, um, we think of uh, c- countries like uh, 
no Dominican Republic and others. This company's technology can also save huge amounts of fuel consumption. Uh, it is an exciting story, and it seems as though this little-known company uh, that's trading around 10 cents a share right now may be on the verge of sudden and significant growth starting this quarter and then really surging dramatically higher in Q2 of this year, if I'm right about that. There should be a huge upside potential for this company's shares, which, as I just noted, are trading at around $0.10. Cents. Uh, in the second part of today's show, after I finish talking to Jim Payne, John Rubino will join me to talk about investing in an era during an era when the petrodollar may be starting its demise. The spoils of World War II enabled the United States to force other countries to accept the petrodollar in place of a gold-backed dollar, that was uh, taken out of commission by Richard Nixon in 1971. But in 2015, the BRICS, it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, set up their own competing uh, financial system that now poses a major threat to, ex- to the existing monetary and political uh, order. Thumbing their nose at the petrodollar, the BRICS have imported huge amounts of gold and set up their own competing banking system. And now with Russia gaining influence in the oil-producing Middle East, the petrodollar's days may indeed be numbered as the world's leading reserve currency. Well, time will tell whether that's true or not, but there's certainly the handwriting would seem to be on the wall. With uh, With a declining dollar, Americans may in the future be facing dramatically higher prices for oil and other commodities, even though in dollar terms the price of oil is currently falling Dramatically, around thirty dollars a barrel now. It's on compared to well over a hundred a couple of years back. Well, given that potential, we'll ask John Rubino how we should prepare our, our, our investments in 2016 and beyond. We do need to go to break now, but don't go away. I will be right back with Jim Payne to learn about Dynasert and how that company is positioning <clears throat> is positioned. Excuse me for a really dramatic growth through its fuel saving hydrogen technology. And following them, uh, following following him, then we'll have John Rubino with me. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jim Payne of Dynasert. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Dynasert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dynasert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dynasert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol DYA, and the OTCBB symbol DYFSF. The website is dynasert.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 472 5790. 
That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me for the first time Jim Payne. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Dinosaur, Inc., and that's a company that I've brought to your attention a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. It's a company I'm very excited about. Uh, it, uh, it has a great future ahead of it, I believe, which is why I've recommended it to my subscribers to Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Well, this company designs engineers, manufactures, tests, distributes, and installs transportable hydrogen generator product uh, and after products, aftermarket products, and is used in reducing fuel consumption in commercial vehicles. And um, it, it really also reduces carbon emissions very significantly. Now, these are things that uh, should be getting the investors' attention, and not a lot of people seem to be aware of this company yet. It has just sort of uh, been busy building its business and not talking too much about what it's doing, uh, but it has some remarkable results, and it looks to me like this could be a huge winner, so that's why I'm really excited about Dinosaur. The company trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol DYA. You can buy it down in the United States, as I have, under the symbol DYFSF. Uh, recently selling at around $0.10 cents a share, and uh, it gives it a market cap of only around $20 million, which uh, I think is really exciting given the upside that I think I see for this company. Anyway, uh, to learn more about it, Jim is with me today. Thanks for joining me, Jim. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure. Really good to have you with me. You know, I, I, I want to ask you about the test. You recently had some tests, well, recently a couple of years back, had tests uh, with Pepsi vehicles, and it significantly reduced the amount of fuel consumption and reduced the uh, hydrogen or, or reduced the uh, carbon emissions very significantly. Uh, but first, before we get to that, I'd like to ask you to explain in layman's terms how your well, how Dinosert's hydrogen generator works. Sure. Well, it's it is uh, it's a very unique process. I mean, it is. Uh, electrolysis system, but it is uh, it is a very unique electrolysis system which actually separates uh, the gases. So we're producing pure hydrogen and pure oxygen from distilled water. Uh, the nice thing is it produces it on demand. There's at no given time that you are storing hydrogen. But what it does is it introduces hydrogen and oxygen into the combustion chamber of an engine at different quantities and different intervals. Now, there's something that we found, you know, through working with combustion experts and rocket scientists and such that, uh, you know, if we could produce pure hydrogen and pure oxygen separated, feed them at different times, different quantities, uh, it really does make a huge difference in the combustion of an engine. What it does is it actually increases the flame spread nine to ten times. Hmm. Uh, by doing that, it's very interesting. You know, people think, you know, well, then your engine's burning hotter. But reality is the engine is firing hotter, but it is actually running cooler. Uh, and this is something that has been proven. Uh, the other thing is, and which really, really, you know, separates us from everybody and has, you know, really made the huge difference in the last few years is that, you know, the way we produce it and the, uh, and the way it's injected because we have come to understand uh, that depending on 
road conditions, depending on weather conditions, depending on humidity, depending on altitude. There are so many factors that, that play into this. And there's times that you need more hydrogen and less oxygen. There's times that you need just the opposite. You need more oxygen and less hydrogen to get that more complete burn. And the nice thing is with getting a more complete burn, it is increasing the power, it's increasing the torque of an engine, it's reducing the fuel consumption on an average 10 to 15 percent, It's uh, and it's reducing the, the carbon footprint. I mean, we are literally reducing the toxic gases that are in the emissions anywhere from 30 to 40 percent, clean across the board. This is something that we've had proven and tested and third-party accredited, and uh, yeah, we're very excited about it. Well, and, and rightfully so. Uh, you have a fair amount of testing that's been done. Uh, talk to us about the testing program. I understand it took place with Pepsi-Cola trucks in around the Detroit area, perhaps. Can you can you talk about when, when were those tests uh, conducted and, and what were the results? This was our early product. Uh, I mean, once we had, like I said, we brought in a rocket scientist to, to confirm what we needed, you know, and you know, he he was one that came out, you know, with where we needed the hydrogen and the oxygen mm-hmm. separated. He developed the science behind the technology we've got today. So the initial product, you know, with that science behind it, Pepsi, you know, stepped up, they bought 200 units. We did a one-year study with them, or they actually did a one-year study running 100 trucks with and 100 trucks without. Uh, They publicly put out in their own Green Fleet magazine that they were reducing the, uh, they reduced their fuel consumption by 14.8%. That was an average on 100 trucks over a one-year study. I mean, they had trucks getting much greater. Of course, they had some trucks that weren't getting as much, but as an average on 100 trucks, 14.8%, which is which is huge. You know, you talk to any trucking company, I mean, the largest fixed cost is fuel. Mm-hmm. So that's a substantial savings uh, potentially for the trucks. But what about complying with environmental re- requirements these days? We're hearing more and more about the need to cut down carbon emissions. It's my understanding that, uh, that it's also been proven that your technology cuts down, I don't know, 30% or so of, of carbon emissions, is that right? Between 30 and 40% of, of the different toxic gases. And, and the, you know, so yes, we are reducing the, the carbon footprint very significantly. And reality is, Jay, we are, I mean, we have, we put this out with Pepsi, and like I said, that was the early model. Then we spent, you know, the better part of a couple of years perfecting it, commercializing it. We put units out all over the globe, being tested. And today we are in the final stages of having this third-party accredited validation because as a public company, I mean, Pepsi, as far as I'm concerned, an end user is the best testimonial you can get. Mm -hmm. But it's not something as a public company we can't can't use that for advertising. We can't use that, you know, like that is, you know, you need to be third-party accredited. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're in that final stages right now. Uh, we have units out there that are being tracked um, literally by computer. And at the end of the day, we will have third-party proper accreditation along with a white paper on our technology. And that was our ultimate goal to take this thing into the final commercialization to get that and then move into the sales phase. And that's where we're at today. All right. So you needed that third-party uh, verification, I guess, is what you were sort of what was holding up and what has held up the sales. Is that right? Uh, since you when when were the Pepsi uh, when was the Pepsi study uh, the Pepsi test done? The Pepsi st- uh, study was done in 2012 and 2013. Very very positive study. Now, like I said, that was the early stage product. 
Mm-hmm. Reality is, Jay, at that point, you know, the science behind the product was, was great. Uh, at that point, it was not really a commercialized viable unit. Uh, it, it was faced with challenges. Pepsi was great to work with. Uh, we actually had a man to chase them around the globe, make sure everything was right and repair, or, you know, make any changes that needed to be done. Fantastic study. Um, you know, but at the same time, it gave us the knowledge and uh, of what we had to do to get this thing, you know, really commercially viable. Uh-huh. And at that point, I literally brought in a group of, of engineers and that, and we spent two years getting this thing right, getting it perfected and putting it out all over the place, you know, having units tested and, uh, and making sure that they, they've got the longevity, that they're, they're working well. And, and, uh, and, yeah, so now we are, like I said, we are literally just, just, just at the stage. I mean, our, our goal is by the end of the first quarter of this year, we are you know, really into the major sales phase. We've already, right now, we, we took our first purchase order of 50 units. They are being installed as we speak. We've had some fantastic results, and actually some of the, the first install we did. I mean, this gentleman owns 350 trucks. He ran this unit for a couple of weeks. He has came back and said, how quick can I order 350 units and get it on my fleet? Oh, okay. So you're, you're getting the orders right now, and the third-party verification will be completed when? It will be completed within the next, I would say, 30 40? to 45 days. Yes. 30 to 40. So uh, w- within the first quarter of this year, within you should have that. But in meantime, you've got orders coming in, significant numbers of orders coming in. You said 350 units, this one uh, party? That is correct. Uh-huh. Now, and what we told them and what we are doing, I mean, we are currently... Increasing our capacity here, our goal is by the end of the first quarter, we, we are manufacturing and having 2,000 units a month at the door. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, can you give our listeners some sense of, uh, of an idea of what sort of profit margins? Are, are, are you free to talk about that at this stage, or is it too early to do that? No, we have a very good understanding of what our profit margins are, and reality is, you know, you look at, you know, you look at sales, I mean, our, you know, you, you look between our wholesale cost, you know, if we put out 10,000 units, um, you know, our, our sales at that point is there's $67,500,000. And then we're basically working on a, a 60% gross, gross margin profit, gross margin on that. 60% on that, uh, 67.5 million. Uh, interesting. Very substantial uh, potential. Then let me ask you about, from the buyer's point of view, how long would it take, let's say, an, an average Pepsi truck to get their investment back? The yeah, at at fourteen point eight percent, I mean, their payback is is seven to eight months. Uh, we you know we try and be very very conservative. We are you know we tell people you're looking at eight to ten percent fuel savings. I'd much rather under promise liver. At that, their payback is less than one year. Uh huh. Okay, so they might run these trucks two, three years, or whatever. Right. Our, our unit, uh, you know, our unit is good for three, uh, good for three years, and mm-hmm. they would need to go through a, you know, refurbishing, but uh, which is not a costly ordeal. But uh, and and the typical truck, I mean, you get into the into the large fleets and that. Mm-hmm. Typically, they operate the trucks for a three-year term. I'm wondering, uh, Jim, 
in this low-cost fuel environment, if that might be an impediment? In other words, putting to look or, or phrasing the question the other way, if we were in, a, say, a hundred-dollar oil and much higher diesel cost or whatever fuels are used by these vehicles would be much higher. Uh, wouldn't that be more of an incentive to go after this hard than at this time when there's low fuel costs? Well, it's interesting you ask that, Jay. I've actually just recently talked to a couple of large states, and, and they said, Jim, you've got to understand, we spend you know, between ten and $15,000 when we get new trucks just to change the tires and put some airfoils and stuff on it to gain 1% to 2% uh-huh. fuel savings. Fuel is still, without a doubt, their number one cost. It is their largest cost, and you know, if they can reduce their fuel savings by... 10 to 15 percent, they've just increased their their margins significantly. Uh-huh, yeah. And probably the biggest uh, savings uh, on fuel that they, uh, opportunity that they've seen in some time, I suppose. Absolutely. Now, the other interesting thing, you know, is, and this is something that's, it's, it's very difficult to put a hard number on. I mean, to put a, to fix a cost on, or, or you know, a return on investment on, but reality is, and this has been proven and, and, uh, by the introduction of hydrogen and oxygen to the engine, the engine runs so much cleaner. Uh, they literally pulled the heads off two trucks at the end of a year. A truck typically just burning diesel fuel without this, you need to take a chisel to scrape the carbon buildup inside the engine, off the heads, off hmm. the valves. With the introduction of hydrogen and oxygen, they pulled the heads off, and they literally took a white ray and wiped it clean. The other very interesting thing was there was a test on the engine trucks, you know, running the same mileage at typical oil change. Standard truck, 8% soot content. I mean, it's the soot that breaks down the engine oil and starts wearing out the engine. With our technology on there, it was less than 1% soot content in the oil. So there is so many added values and added features that, uh, in, including the increased torque and the increased power, and, uh, you know, that you really can't put a true monetary value to what extent do you think the uh, the carbon emissions uh, reduction comes into play in making this more attractive? I mean, are there regulations out there with these commercial vehicles uh, that require improvements? Uh, places like California, I suppose that might be true. Or There is everywhere. I mean, well, everywhere. I mean, certainly everywhere within North America. You get into Europe, not yes, there, there's, you know, huge conditions they've got to meet. Currently, I mean, the trucks are having to add and, and even you know, the new trucks. I mean, they are coming out with all these different added features, you know, where they're adding urea and everything like that to an engine to try and meet the emission standards. This is actually robbing them of fuel efficiency, and it's robbing them of power, where, you know, by this technology, we're not there yet. I really do believe that, you know, a lot of these added products that are on trucks today, they will be able to eliminate. I have talked to more truckers. I mean, you, you take these, you know, these urea systems and that, they hate them. I mean, it is costing them so much downtime and, uh, you know, and problems. It's unbelievable. Jim, we're talking about commercial trucks at this point in time, but I know there are other markets that you have your eyes on as well. What about automobiles, uh, you know, regular cars like the one like my Honda that I drive? Well, the reality is, Jay, you know, the automobiles was not a market that we were looking at. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden in the last few months, uh, you know, we've all heard and read about certain car manufacturers that are facing some 
real serious challenges with their diesel engines. Right. You know, where, you know, they have not been meeting uh, the emission standards. And uh, so we have very quickly built a prototype, and we are actually testing it today on one of those specific diesel engines and, and a, a diesel car. Um, we really do believe that, you know, just with the introduction of the hydrogen and oxygen, it's going to solve their problem. We haven't verified that yet. This is a process that we're going through, but it has worked in every larger diesel engine. I can't imagine why it's not going to do the same on the smaller diesel engine. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, if this, uh, if this proves to, to, to do what we believe it's going to do, uh, it could be a godsend for certain companies out there. So, also, I know that you've done some things with the power plants in more remote areas of the world. Could you talk about that for a moment? Absolutely. We've actually got an ongoing uh, project with, uh, it's actually Wartella engine. It's one of the, uh, built the largest engines in the world. And, you know, this burns heavy oil. I mean, this oil is so thick and so dirty that they have to preheat it in the warm climates even to get it to flow into an engine so they can burn it. Hmm. And we have a project going on, and this has, a, they said, you know, show us 5% fuel savings, that 5% fuel savings on, now this is a very large engine, it's a 10,000 horsepower engine. At 5% fuel savings, and this is a half million dollar unit, this is not a $10,000 unit like a transport truck, at a half million dollars at 5% fuel savings, their payback is less than one year. Uh, In less than and, one year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once again, their biggest challenge with these engines because of the oil that they're burning is, I mean, the carbon buildup inside them is so drastic. I mean, that they have to continually be shutting, shutting the cylinder down and scraping the carbon just to keep them running. Wow. So there's costs that are, there's costs that are involved with that, then uh, uh, downtime and all that that could be eliminated potentially, yeah. And also, I mean, like, that's one specific one where we had, you know, a third-party company come in and they, we got proven, uh, we've got all the proof and the stats where when I say 30 to 40%, this reduced their toxic gases their, in their output of their emissions by 30 to 40% wow. across the board. Now, right now, they are not yet being uh, so governed you know, for emissions, although this is, you know, this is something that is, is really, really coming to the, to the forefront today. Uh, the, nice, the other nice thing with this is uh, Jay is, you know, with this engine type, this is a direct conduit for us into the shipping area. Right. Mm-hmm. We look at shipping, we look at rail. I mean, this in itself is another huge, huge market. And I found it very interesting just uh, back a couple months ago, there was a big article went out talking about container ships. And, you know, this is something that I found staggering, but one container ship puts out the equivalent to 50 million cars a year in pollution. Wow. And right now it's not being governed. Incredible, incredible. I would imagine if they can reduce the amount of fuel that they're, uh, that they're loading on a ship to take a ship, let's say, from North America to Europe, that that would also mean they could have more space to put cargo on there and, and get revenues from that. Is that, uh, is that correct? You're absolutely right. It's, it's funny. I mean, after you know, after we got the first results on this Wartella engine, uh, Wartella themselves have been tracking this, and uh, we actually got a call here from two of the largest shipbuilders in in, uh, in Korea. 
matter of fact, these, these companies I didn't even know they made ships. I mean, one of them I knew made TVs, the other I knew made cell phones, but ends up at a larger shipboard. And I had a conversation wow. with them. And they were saying to me, you know, like, I, you know, we're talking 10% fuel savings. I said, you know, like 10% fuel saving, it pays for itself. And they said, Jim, you have no idea. 10% fuel savings, they said, our number one largest cargo is our fuel. Huh. They said, if we, can, if we can decrease that by 10%, we can increase our payload by 10%. And that's worth more to us than the fuel savings. Than the fuel savings. Incredible. Well, this is really, really an exciting story. I, I, I know you just recently raised about a million and a half dollars. Uh, Jim, was that in order to provide working capital to start delivering some of those units, uh, hydrogen was, units? That was exactly uh, that was exactly part of it, Jay. I mean, it, it was, I mean, like I, I said, like we're going through this validation process. I mean, this validation process is a costly process. You know, this is something that nobody else has ever done in this, in this field. It's something that we felt was was critical. You know, I, I believe this was the most important step we've ever taken with this company. Uh, but yes, without without a doubt, I mean that's you know, that's helping us fund that. It's also helping us. Uh, like we are currently hiring more people. We just brought on a new general manager mm-hmm. uh, just a few weeks ago, and this this gentleman worked with us as a consultant for the for the past two years. He. Uh, he is an MBA, an MBNA. He is uh, a PNG. He worked for Shell Oil. He went and opened up countries in that for them. Uh, understands this field, but he's also very, very well connected to a couple of the largest OEMs in the trucking field and understands these engines inside out. So he was, like I said, working with us as a consultant. We have just hired him full-time as a general manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he is really going to help us move forward. Uh, we are currently hiring more staff, and we are increasing our capacity and building out an additional 10,000 square feet here. Um, and you're located in Toronto or outside of Toronto, I believe? We are located in Toronto, just yeah. to the north end of Toronto, just off of... And we're literally just off of the 400 and the 401, so mm-hmm. perfect location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, Jim, I suppose what we should, uh, I would imagine what I want to watch anyway is uh, your financial reports and, and other reports that you're putting out in terms of units of sales and that sort of thing. What, what should investors be looking for? Uh, what drivers should we be looking for uh, to keep keep up to date with what's going on in the company? Well, sales are certainly, I mean, that's what everybody looks for. It, it's, you know, everybody looks for sales. Once you start seeing sales, you know, they, they know things are moving forward. Uh, the trucking industry is certainly, you know, our low-lying fruit. It is what's going to capitalize the company and give us the revenue stream and the capital to move things forward in all these other areas. Uh, you know, like I said, by the end of the first quarter, you know, our ultimate goal is that we're putting up 2,000 units a month with, with the capacity from there to increase that to four or 6,000 units a month by just putting in second and third shift. I do believe that, you know, this is going to outgrow our capacity or, or our desire to be the manufacturing, and we've already you know, in talks with some of the largest auto part manufacturers here in North America that have a very strong appetite of, of manufacturing for us. Um, hmm, okay. So you may, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that would help uh, to reduce the amount of capital you would need to raise to uh, to keep growing your business. But you have the ability to do 
uh, 2000 a month now, where you're at, you feel? So, yes. Yes, okay. All right. Well, well, on let a me, single shift. Uh, on a single shift. And so you double shift and go to 4000 Correct. I see. Or, or even six around the clock, possibly. That's right. Seven days a week? Or do you give a day of rest in there? <laughs> we will give a day of rest. Okay, that's a good thing, I think. Uh, anything else? Um, I mean, what, what could go wrong here? I mean, everything you're telling me sounds really good. But I know, you know, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I've been around a long time, and I know... There are always hiccups uh, when you're starting a new business, when you're growing, and so on and so forth. What, what are some of the risks that investors might want to keep, uh, be aware of um, and keep an eye out for? What keeps you awake at night, I guess, is another way of asking the question. What keeps me awake at night? Well, for the last few years, I mean, it was to get this product right and get it, uh, get it tested and get it commercialized. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've been around a long time, too, Jay, and I'm no fool. I understand that. You know, as you start growing and it's expanding, uh, there's always challenges. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, I'm not losing sleep over that. You know, I thrive on a challenge. Uh, I do believe that we've got a fantastic team. Uh, you know, but certainly our, our largest challenge in the near future is, is continuing to put the right people on the bus as we move this thing forward. It's, uh, yeah, the, the good people, the people that you need, yeah, of course. Uh, well, it looks like you've done a good job of bringing some really highly qualified people on your staff, Jim, and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to following this story uh, for my subscribers, for myself as an investor, and uh, really hope that we can talk to you some more. Is there, is there anything else you'd like to add before we, before we conclude our discussion today? Well, I think the only thing is, I mean, you talked about the automotive industry, I mean, you know, and we talk, touched on stationary generators and shipping and rail. Uh, you know, buses. Buses are a huge market. Uh, it's interesting. You know, I've had several talks with the largest uh, bus ring manufacturer here, just outside of Toronto, and he's telling me, you know, like the, even he said, Jim, the city buses and the garbage trucks. He said they're the biggest challenge because, and it is because of carbon buildup is the huh. time. Huh. I see city, and it's funny, I never ever noticed before. Now I see at least one city bus a day on the back of a tow truck. Yes, I see it here in New York often as well. And uh, uh, so they're very excited. I mean, this, this firm is very excited. You know, they believe that, you know, with, uh, with our technology, it's going to make a huge change there. Nether market. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're... Um, Jay, I, I'm out of the box, you know, and I'm the first to admit it. I mean, uh, you know, but... What late, what keeps me up at night, you know, I lay there and I, I know that with this technology, I mean, there is literally hundreds of, of opportunities and applications. You know, I also know and understand, you know, we've got to keep walking one step in front of the other. But as we move forward, you know, I do believe that eventually we will be out of the manufacturing, uh, but we will be moving into so many different verticals that, you know, that this technology works with. Something that really excites me and has kept me awake at night, and I spent two years studying this. I come with an engineering background. I've talked to more engineers and more scientists and things. I feel without a shadow of doubt that we can take our technology and add it to coal-fired power plants hmm. and get them mm-hmm. significant reduction in their emissions. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, you know, this is very forward-looking, but I do believe that that is a huge opportunity. You know, I believe that that's something that can be a world changer. You know, like I said, I've been around a long time too. I mean, I've got seven grandchildren. It's 
something that really, really is, is something that weighs heavy on my mind, you know, that I want to make sure that, you know, we leave this world a better place for our kids and our grandchildren. And, you know, I'm excited with what we're doing. I really well, do believe, and even with the, you know, with the government today, I mean, with our new government, our new Canadian government, uh, they are here now knocking on our door mm -hmm. because you know, they see a huge opportunity I and mean, they've made some very bold statements how they're going to reduce the carbon footprint and things. I've got a technology that can help them do that and do that drastically. It's a really great story, Jim, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited for you and for the company and uh, for anybody who buys this stock at, in these levels. Um, you know, we hear a lot about Tesla. We haven't heard much about you. It seems to me that uh, your company is probably in a position to do more than Tesla in a way because what people aren't thinking about is that when you charge up the batteries for a Tesla, you're also requiring some fuel plant someplace to probably to use up some fuel and to pollute the environment in that way. So it's not as if it's a zero or as if it's a win-win completely for a Tesla. So you guys have the potential to save on fuel consumption right away and reduce carbon emissions right away without this huge capital expenditure. So I, th I think it's really a great story. And I want to thank you very much, Jim, for being with us. Uh, I look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. Jay, it was a real pleasure. All right, well, folks, well, don't go away. We've got to go to commercial break. But when we come back, I'm going to be talking to John Rubino. He's going to talk to me about how do we invest in a world in which the petrodollar is losing its prestige. Uh, that may be not all that unrelated with what we just talked to Jim about. But uh, stick around. We'll be uh, talking to John Rubino after the break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Dynacert is a global leader in carbon emission reduction technologies. Created for use in diesel engines, the hydrogen unit has been proven to reduce carbon emissions by 30 to 40 percent, increase torque, and provide up to 15 percent in fuel savings. Our leading edge technology is designed for tractor trailers, rail, marine, and newly developed for diesel engine cars. Dynacert's ability to reduce greenhouse gases provides long-term benefits to the environment. Dynacert trades on the TSX Venture, symbol DYA, and the OTCBB symbol DYFSF. The website is dynacert.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again my friend, John Rubino. Uh, the best place to go to keep up with John's work is uh, dollarcollapse.com, dollarcollapse.com. John runs that site, and uh, he is um, co-author with Gold Money's James Turk uh, on, a, on a really great book, uh, The Money Bubble. What to Do Before It Pops, and, and uh, also John has been the author of a number of other books, uh, all worth taking a look at and, and absorbing because uh, he brings his, 
his background on Wall Street and uh, in the markets uh, and really sort of helps the, the rubber hit the road with respect to how we should plan our lives and uh, and how we should invest our money. So I'm really pleased to have John with me. Thanks for joining me again, John. Hey, Jay. Good to talk to you again. Always good to have you on. I've titled today's show, Investing During the Petrodollar's Demise. Well, uh, so far, it doesn't look like the petrodollar is, is in demise, so I imagine a lot of people are wondering if I'm playing with a full deck here. But, uh, John, uh, what's your outlook for the dollar, the petrodollar? Uh, well, well, the, the, the petrodollar is, um, is based on the deal we cut with Saudi Arabia back in the 1970s when we said, we'll protect you if you only take dollars for your oil. And that basically made the dollar the, um, the, the necessary currency if you were going to trade oil, which everybody does, so everybody had to own dollars. And it, it reinforced the position of the dollar as the world's most important currency. And it, it has maintained... Um, the, the petrodollar status um, ever since, until just lately. And now things are starting to change in the Middle East and around the world. You know, a lot of countries don't consider the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency a good thing from their point of view because that gives the U.S. a huge amount of power. You know, it lets us borrow unlimited amounts of money and maintain a military empire that uh, that pushes a lot of other countries around. So China, mm-hmm. Russia, India, countries like that uh, would like to use their own currencies for foreign trade. And they're starting to do that. They're cutting a lot of bilateral trade deals where they don't need the dollar. They use rupees and rubles and yuan. And, and um, so we're cut out of that trade. And now in the Middle East, um, things are changing in part because of our behaviors and in part because of kind of the natural evolution of, uh, of the Islamic world, um, such that not everybody's using dollars there anymore. And uh, basically, Saudi Arabia is still the key to this. And they're not happy with how we have, in, from their point of view, cozied up to Iran, who is their mm-hmm. main rival in the Middle East. And so it looks like Saudi Arabia is not as wedded to the whole petrodollar monopoly as it used to be. And so it could be that uh, the dollar isn't the sole currency that is used for oil trading in the future. Um, And other things being equal, that would weaken the dollar and and make it less important in the world. But other things aren't equal because the rest of the world is in such chaos right now. We've got massive capital inflows happening from all the countries that are terrified that their own systems are going to spin out of control. And that is buoying the dollar it's making it more valuable than it would be otherwise and uh, which makes sense i mean if you are rich and you're in brazil or china or russia are you going to leave your money sitting around in some local bank or are you going to get a miami condo or are you going to buy treasury bonds and and uh, store them in an offshore account mm-hmm. um, you're going to do the latter probably because that's what most people in the world are doing and so we've got this huge, this tidal wave of capital flowing in right now. And that's making the dollar um, really the only currency in the world that's actually strong right now. Uh, and so when that tide recedes, that will be a very risky time for the dollar because it won't have the support of the, the oil trade to the extent that it has in the past. Mm-hmm. And it, it won't be as in demand. And you know, at that point, it'll probably go down, if not before. I mean, the, the other thing that will affect the dollar is when the U.S. economy finally 
blows up, you know, which just looking at the numbers, we're not that far from that. You know, right now we are the, um, the least ugly country in the world. And so that's not the same thing as being a good looking country. You know, our, mm-hmm. our finances are horrendous and in a vacuum, if you were just looking at us, you'd say, whoa, that, that's a weak currency country. They're going to have to devalue really aggressively mm-hmm. to get out from under their excessive debts. Mm-hmm. And that's still out there. That's going to have to happen. But in the meantime, in the uh, you know, immediate present, um, there's a lot of capital flowing in from places that are even worse managed than we are. And, uh, and that's saying something. You know, to, say, to look at our numbers and say that these other countries are in worse shape means those other countries are in really, really bad shape. You know, China, obviously, we, we've talked about China's overborrowing in the last five or six years. And now they're the resulting credit crisis. And uh, Russia is an oil exporting country um, where oil has gone from uh, $110 a barrel to below 30 today. And Brazil is just an absolute basket case. They've got spiking inflation and a shrinking economy at the same time. Europe is um, is on the verge of an implosion, it looks like, or at least the the Eurozone and the European Union's rules are going to have to be changed in a really dramatic way if they want to survive as entities because they've got the the, the stuff that's going on with really millions of Middle Eastern refugees right now coming over, swamping the, the social safety net and behaving very badly. And then they've got a lot of separatist movements and, uh, and fringe political movements that are moving to the mainstream and, and getting uh, majority votes in a lot of elections. And these guys are anti-Euro or anti-EU, anti-austerity. They're opposed to most of the rules that now govern the European Union. So they're in trouble. So the, the world is a mess right now. And... Uh, there doesn't seem to be any kind of an immediate solution, which implies that uh, 2016 is going to be a really fascinating year in which any number of things could blow up and two or three things should blow up. All right. What are the two or three that should blow up? Well, the two or three that should go are China should have to devalue its currency really aggressively because it just borrowed way too much money and it's got all these, you know, the ghost cities, blah, blah, blah. We know that story. Yes. And, um, and the idea that they're still growing is really based on fictitious numbers that, uh, you know, everybody's known their numbers were always fictitious, but you could go to uh, a Chinese city and see all the cranes building buildings and it looked like there was really aggressive growth. So you kind of knew they were growing to an extent, but that turned out to be a mirage because of borrowed money. They borrowed they built things that shouldn't have been built. Now those things aren't generating any kind of cash flow. And so they've got huge sections of their economy that's going broke. So the idea that they're growing is probably fictitious. I suspect they're shrinking. So they have to devalue the yuan really aggressively. Mm-hmm. Europe, for reasons we just talked about, will, will have to devalue the euro really aggressively if it wants to keep Spain, Italy, Portugal, Greece in the eurozone. Because the only way they can survive... Um, in a common currency union is if that currency is extremely weak. Mm-hmm. So, and then Brazil has to have its crisis. They haven't had the crisis yet. You know, they're just kind of drifting in that direction where lots of things are going wrong, but they haven't really hit bottom. So those are things that almost certainly have to happen in 2016. And then, you know, the U.S. has an awful lot of underlying problems that will be exacerbated by a stronger dollar. You know, when when we say... 
the euro has to be devalued. That's exactly the same thing as saying the dollar has to be revalued. It has to get uh-huh. more valuable. And mm-hmm. so let the dollar go up another 10 or 15% from here. And uh, corporate earnings in the U.S., which are already falling. You know, we're in an um, earnings recession where we're, we're having two straight quarters of dropping corporate profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is due to a too strong dollar. So let the dollar go up from here, and U.S. corporations will report some shockingly bad numbers in 2016 and 2017. And if, if it's still true that share prices are determined in the long run by underlying corporate earnings, then falling earnings ought to give us falling share prices. So we could have easily, you know, a earnings recession leading to a bear market in equities here, which in turn would lead to, lead to an across-the-board recession in the U.S., um, at a time when we have so much debt that it's not clear we can survive another recession. You know, any recession will turn into a 2008-2009 style crisis. So, and all of this stuff is just right here. You know, it's this quarter, next quarter, the quarter after. So, it's 2016 story. So, John, you're saying we can't have a garden variety recession. It's going to be either slow growth or uh, massive decrease of growth or an implosion, if you will, a a depression? Well, things that didn't used to be systemically risky are now systemically (laughs) risky because we borrowed so much money. You know, picture a family that um, if they've got a bunch of money in the bank and the roof leaks, no problem. They just fix the roof. But if they've maxed out all their credit cards, they have no money in the bank whatsoever, and the roof leaks then fixing that roof could bankrupt the family. Well, that, we're like that family now. You know, anything that goes wrong is really dangerous for us because it could blow up the junk bond market. It could blow up the derivatives market. It could push equities down by 30 or 40 or 50% instead of just 10 or 15% like would normally happen in, uh, in a, a typical correction slash bear market. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those things could um, snowball. You know, once one thing gets going, it causes other things to blow up because everybody's over leveraged. You know, we've got all these hedge funds out there that have taken really aggressive positions in volatile things that are now, um, for a lot of hedge funds, being very volatile in the wrong direction. So a lot of hedge funds are going to blow up, which means they've got to liquidate their portfolios, which puts pressure on other assets. You know, there are so many things that are interrelated and can go wrong and one cause one domino to fall, which causes another to fall. And and that's where we are right now. We're at a really Mm -hmm. fragile stage in this long, long, long credit bubble. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why James Turk and I, called the, the book that we did, The Money Bubble, because basically this is, a, this is not a, a junk bond bubble or a tech stock bubble, you know, something limited to one discrete mm-hmm. sector that mm-hmm. when it blows up, it'll hurt those investors, but that's it. Uh, this is our money that we have inflated beyond uh, recognition, really. You know, the, the credit system in the, the developed world is leveraged beyond anything that we've ever seen in history. You know? So what, what happens to unwind it is probably going to be commensurately extreme. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's the bursting of the money bubble. And, All right, John. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, you, you go ahead, Jay. I, no, I was just going to ask you then. The, you, so we have this, this petrodollar that was created after, uh, you know, by Henry Kissinger after Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. Shortly thereafter, Kissinger sets up this uh, petrodollar. Um, <clears throat> you know the the dollar is remaining so strong. Uh, what what could 
at the same time, we, we see the, the BRICs are definitely seeming not to be all that pleased with the way they've been treated uh, in the dollar area. Uh, and they're setting up their own system. They're setting up their own institutions, similar to what we have in the West. And um, I know I read that uh, Russia is selling their oil to China for gold. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I've heard that story. And uh, Iran was also um, selling oil for gold. And uh, so, so, you know, that, that makes sense. I mean, gold is money. And so it, it makes sense that there's kind of a black market out there mm-hmm. in which other things besides dollars are being traded by, by countries that aren't yet ready just to stand up and, and defy the petrodollar system. But a lot of these guys are, are willing to just put it right out there. You know, Russia and China are using their own currencies for bilateral trade. And India is involved in that, too. You know? mm-hmm. And, and uh, so I think we'll see more and more of that. And, and part of that is just a, a natural evolution of the financial system. As these countries become more consequential... They want their currencies to become more consequential, and, and that's as it should be. You know, there's no reason why we can't use uh, um, rubles or something in, in a lot of trade. If Russia is a big, important country, why, why isn't their currency used for stuff like that? So mm-hmm. it, part of um, what's happening and what the U.S. is kind of fighting against is an inevitable natural evolution of the world getting richer and more stable um, and us being 5% of the population. So we, mm-hmm. we shouldn't dominate very many aspects of global life if there, we're just 5% of, of the people in the world. You know, the, the other aggregations of people should be consequential also. And the fact that we were so dominant after World War II was, was more of a historical accident than anything else. And it's something that would eventually have to be um, reversed out or evolved away from. And that's that's kind of what's happening now. You know, there's no reason to be surprised by the dollar losing a little bit of its reserve currency status over time. We have, uh, yeah, I mean, with, with the United States uh, being the victors of World War II, the West uh, coming out of that, uh, clearly that's, uh, you know, the spoils of World War II, as it were. But it seems to me, in my, my view, that we have vastly abused that uh, that power that flow that that resulted from the second war <clears throat> uh, and uh, creating dollars. And, and certainly when Kissinger went to Saudi Arabia and arranged the petrodollar after the uh, gold was taken from the dollar, that seems to have set the, uh, set the table for this massive abuse of money creation that the U.S. has used for its military industrial complex to now it seems to try to force countries to, uh, to stay with the current system, with the dollar system, Right. Well, yeah, we're, we're fighting tooth and claw to keep our privilege, <laughs> and, and we won't be able to do it. I mean, short of a catastrophe in a lot of other countries that leaves us standing and, and them not standing, uh, but we really did abuse the privilege of having the world's reserve currency, and you know that's a basic lesson in human nature is power is always abused, and so we should... In a, um, a sustainable system, you want a balance of lots of different interests that keep each other in check rather than one dominant power because that one dominant power will always be corrupted by its power. And so that, you know, the best we can hope for in the world in the future is balance of power politics for as far as the eye can see because that's the only solution. There is no 
libertarian utopia or socialist utopia out there where everybody believes the same thing and acts according to a, a, a consistent, coherent set of rules. That's not how human societies work. So um, the U.S. is just going to have to get used to other countries being powerful and being you know, militarily dominant in their neighborhoods and having currencies that compete with ours and, and, you know, and competing with us in all the other aspects of life. That's just the way it is. All right, we've got only two minutes to go yet, John, and I, I hardly have scratched the surface here in terms of the things I want to ask you about. Yeah. But um, what's your anticipation with regard to the Fed activities now? Will they cave in on raise on, on uh, interest rates here if the equity markets continue to go much lower? Larry Summers uh, is saying they shouldn't have raised rates anyway. But it's, it's, And, and the other thing is that we're raising rates, as you pointed out, at a time when the economy is getting uh, is not strong at all. Well, we're raising rates at a time when not only is the um, local economy, the domestic economy, um, shrinking by a lot of measures, but the, the world is in chaos. You know, normally, um, anytime in the last 20 or 30 years, this kind of stuff would have been met with a deluge of easy money from the Fed. But this time around, we're contracting the money supply, we're raising interest rates. I think they got to reverse it out. Sometime in 2016, a crisis happens that will um, cause the Fed to just take it all back. They'll say, you know what? We were wrong and things have changed. And from now on, we're going to cut interest rates. We're going to increase the money supply. We're, we'll do that debt jubilee we've been talking about. All right. And what's that going to do for the precious metals, John? Uh, it probably makes them go through the roof. But all right. That's just a guess. Yeah. That will, time will tell. Unfortunately, we're out of time, and so we don't have much time to tell, unfortunately. Uh, I want to thank you very much, John, for being with me again. Sorry for the abbreviated time. We'll get you on for a longer period the next time, hopefully. So, Great. Th- thank you so much. Well, that is all the time we have. Uh, next week, I'm going to have Mike Maloney with me, uh, and I expect Michael Oliver will join me as well. So I do want to thank you for listening. Thank our sponsors, and Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, and all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Thank you.